testing, testing, one, two, three. Can everybody hear us? Yes, all right, good. So this is the informal introduction. We'll be getting started in just a moment. I like folks to join online and all that jazz. And of course, by all means, everyone needs to bear with me. If you haven't been here before, I'm a wine lady, not a techno lady, but I'm your production, so bear with me. Um, so excited to have you guys in here. Um, this is our second tasting in 19 months that I've been here. So this is fantastic to see all of your beautiful faces um, and get questions and reactions to wine. Um, tonight we have Allison Sokol Blosser from Oregon. Actually, this is from so uh, Sokol Blosser Winery. Um, I had the pleasure of getting to know um, uh, Oregon wine country in this kind of adult summer camp called uh, Pinot Camp. And it's Oregon Pinot Camp. And it's a summer camp for wine lovers is essentially what it is. And uh, by the it actually, Allison was the president at the time. And they bring you all over Oregon. You smell the liquid phenols of plowed soil versus unplowed soil. And then you taste the wine afterwards. And they dig a huge trench with stairs that you get to walk down and see all the different beautiful soil structures. Um, amazing food, some of the best vegetables I've ever tasted in my life. And maybe one day I'll tell you about the salmon bake, which still is literally the best dinner I've ever had in my entire life. And it, it was in the middle of a vineyard, but still it was amazing. Um, but with there, I kind of uh, got to know a little bit about Sokol Blosser. My first uh, bottle that I was able to bring into a um, uh, business that I worked at in restaurants was the 2017 Dundee Hills um, estate Pinot Noir, which we're tasting the 2018 tonight. And so I'm excited to taste these with you. And without further ado, Allison will take it away. Hi. And you, you forgot to mention that we bus you around on school buses. So it really is like camp. we did. Yes. There were 60 adults on school buses and it, they always tell you that to layer, there's all this stuff like, you know, that's, that's diurnal temperature shifts it's going to be cold and then a little warm and then cold. It was like 101 degrees every single day that we were there. So one of my favorite memories is when we get up to Ponzi and that's when we were supposed to like do a dive in on a bunch of red wine. And as soon as they got up there, they were like in their bottling room made out of concrete floors, we'll find beer and popsicle sticks for you or pops or uh, the frozen popsicles for you. And it was great. It was so refreshing, but um, yeah, school buses. It was great. It was a lovely experience. It really was. Well, the saying is that it takes a lot of beer to make good wine, and it also takes a lot of beer to get through Oregon Pinot Camp. Yes, so it does. That's that's there's a symbiotic relationship between beer and wine that you may not have known about. <laughs> um, well, I'm Allison Sokolblosser. I'm excited to share my family's wines with you tonight. And you know, Cassandra mentioned that this is her second tasting that she's done in 19 months. This is my first in-person event in 19 months. Holy moly! So, that is amazing to like see all of you and, you know, only just be like slightly terrified of all of you versus <laughs> if I had done an event like six months ago, it would have been like really terrified. So, um, it's great. It's great to be here. And, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if I'm a little rusty, you can be like, Hey, pick it up, pick it up. Come on, let's go. Cause I'm used to doing this. This is, you know, this is what my family does. This is our life. Um, love traveling around and sharing stories and wines with everybody. So I'm going to start off and talk a little bit about our history and how Sokol Blosser came to be. We're going to talk about where we are um, 
and what makes Oregon such a phenomenal place for growing grapes and making wine. And then we're also going to taste some wine. So does anybody want to taste wine? Hopefully. Yeah. Um, I'm curious who's been to Oregon. That's actually impressive. Wow. Have any of you been to wine country? And have any of you been to Sokol Blosser? Oh my gosh. Well, I know you've been there. I know Chris has been there. Um, well, that's amazing. So thanks for coming tonight. I'm going to stand up. Maybe I can see everybody without having to. Am I still in the thing? Okay. Then I can see everybody without, I don't want anyone to get a neck cramp. Um, perfect. Well, it's good to see you all again. And hopefully for those who haven't been to Sokol Blosser, you'll be so excited about what you're tasting and learning tonight that you're going to want to book a flight and come out and see us sometime. So let's talk about history. We can go one, one slide forward. Um, I cheated because I wanted to make sure that you all liked me tonight. So this is my baby picture with my mom. So you can say, oh, so cute. Um, but yeah, so this, uh, you know, we, we they start are- labor young in Oregon, don't they? They, well, that's why you have kids. Exactly, yeah. You yeah. need free labor, especially yeah. now. Yeah. Um, I got lots of stories about the last couple of years, all the free labor we've been, <laughs> we've been using. Um, anyway, so Sokol's my mother's family name and Blosser is my father's family name. That's how they came up with the name. They were history majors. They met um, at Stanford and they were told you can do anything with a good liberal arts degree. So why not start a vineyard and start making wine? And, you know, they, they came to Oregon in their Volkswagen camper bus. My dad had a teaching position at, at Portland State that he was going to take. And uh, they thought, hey, let's, let's plant grapes. Wouldn't that be cool? How hard could it be? People have been making wine for centuries. And the fact that they had no farming experience, no winemaking experience, no business experience, details, that, that did not deter them. The fact that they chose Oregon, which at that time, um, because they came in 1970, at that time did not have, uh, was not a commercially successful place for growing grapes. And they chose Pinot Noir, um, some other varietals as well, but primarily Pinot Noir. Uh, and that was not very well known in the United States at that point, nor was it very popular. So they had all the odds stacked against them. So it's somewhat of a miracle that I'm here as second generation that there's now close to 900 wineries in Oregon. That's insane. Um, you know, when growing up, when my parents were starting out, the entire Oregon wine industry literally fit in our living room and would gather. And I couldn't understand what these old folks were talking about. I mean, to me, you know, when you're like two, three, they, everyone seems old. Like, what are they talking about? They're talking about trellises. They're talking about used equipment. They're talking about you know, pressing and, and all these strange things and clones and rootstocks. And what is this? Won't somebody play with me? And no, they were always working and trying to make a go of it. So when I look at this photo, um, this is my mother and I was about two and she had been out pounding posts all day. Um, and, you know, she describes it as, oh, you know, she took a break and um, I ran up and jumped on and someone happened to have a camera and they took a photo. 
And I look at this and I'm like, but mom, you were always working. And so this was the, please hold me, please take a break. (laughs) Can we play? Because that's, you know, when, when you're in a farming family, that's, that's what you do. And if you've grown up in a farming family, you probably know that, that everything was centered around the business. And um, so my parents started with five acres, um, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc, Riesling, Muller Turgau. We think we were the first to commercially plant Muller Turgau in the United States. Um, they weren't totally sure what was going to work. They even planted some Merlot and some Cabernet and came to find out it really is Pinot Noir that grows best. And I'll talk a little bit more about why that is. We can go to the, the next slide. So this is um, a photo of my mom pouring some of our earlier vintages in our tasting room. And, um, you know, we started from those five acres and expanded to now um, we have about 120 acres and um, we're certified organic in our vineyards as well. So it really shows that if you have a dream and you're willing to work hard, you can do it. You can create an entire industry. Um, My father ran, initially, you know, my father ran the winery. My mother ran the vineyard. And then um, by 1990, uh, things were pretty tough. And it was hard selling Oregon wine. They would travel around the country and they take a map and they say, here's Oregon. It's not Oregon, it's Oregon. <laughs> we are just south of Washington, Washington State, now Washington, D.C., just <laughs> north of California. And we're in the Willamette Valley. It's Willamette. It rhymes with damn it. So trying to <laughs> teach people where Oregon was and, and get people to understand that Oregon was a great place for growing grapes and making wine was really hard. So by 1990, my dad was done. It was really tough. And so my mother took over running the winery in addition to her vineyard duties. So I, for, you know, most of my memories are watching my mom run the business, which is pretty awesome. Um, You know, very, it made a strong impression on me, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing now. I've got two older brothers as well. And I probably at some point have photos of them in here too. But, um, you know, we're still very much family owned and operated. In 2008, um, my brother, Alex, my middle brother, and and I took over the business from our mom. She likes to say that it took two to replace her, (laughs) which is kind of true, (laughs) which is definitely true. So he's our winemaker. Um, He grows the grapes, makes the wine, and then I run the business side of things. So, so far, so good. It's a good partnership. Um, we can go to the next one. So this is what the vineyard looks like before all the, the bomb cyclone came last week. It kind of came here too, but yeah. you don't call it a bomb cyclone. No. You call it a nor'easter? Nor'easter, yep. Yeah. It felt like home. So thank you. <laughs> like, oh, Oregon came to me. Winds, yep. Yeah. But the wind part, not so much, but the, the rain, I was like, this, this is nice. Um, but yeah, so before all the rains, this is fall at the vineyard. Um, just, you know, really, really beautiful colors. We finished harvest um, about the middle of October and just finished now getting this week, getting all of our Pinot Noir into barrel. So I can finally have a real conversation with Alex because he doesn't have the stress of harvest <laughs> right now. So let's talk about place and where are we. Um, this is Oregon. 
And I had to get the updated map of all the growing regions in Oregon because we have a couple new ones. So there's now 21 small, you know, specific, I should say, uh, growing areas in Oregon. So great trivia question if you're looking for some good super geeky wine trivia. How many growing regions, how many AVAs are in Oregon? As of today, 21. Um, so when you look at Oregon, you've got the Pacific Ocean on the west. And then, you know, so, so that's, that's a pretty important factor because we get a lot of the weather coming off of the Pacific. However, there's a coastal mountain range right here. So that kind of buffers the Willamette Valley. And the Willamette Valley is this big area right in here. And this is where the majority of the wine grapes are grown. Not all of them, but it's like... 65, 70% of the grapes in Oregon are grown in the Willamette Valley. You also have the Cascade mountain range, which is a much bigger, um, longer mountain range. So when the weather comes off the Pacific, it rains quite a bit. It's a very stormy coast. Um, and then once it makes it over the coast range and it's over the Willamette Valley, we get dumped on with a lot more rain before it moves, before weather systems move over the Cascade Range to the eastern part of the state. The eastern part of the state is actually, most of it's a high desert. So the Willamette Valley is a very fertile growing region because we do get a lot of rain and we grow a wide range of crops. Obviously I'm here to talk about grapes, but we also have a lot of hazelnuts. We have more like the top grass seed farming region in the country. Um, so if you have allergies, don't come without a lot of allergy medicine. Um, so, you know, just a wide array of, uh, of crops, amazing fruits and vegetables in the, uh, in the summertime. So diving in a little bit farther into the northern part of the Willamette Valley, you have kind of the main sub-appellations within the, norm, the, the Willamette Valley. Our home AVA is the Dundee Hills, which is right here. We just bought in August a vineyard in the Yamhill Carlton district, which is right here, which we're really excited about. It's our first vineyard acquisition outside of the Dundee Hills. Um, so it's a, it's a big deal for us. And then we lease and farm a vineyard in the Eola Amity Hills, which is right down here. And, you know, even though the Willamette Valley sort of has this similar climate in that it's um, a cooler climate, we have, um, as Cassandra mentioned, a big diurnal temperature shift. And that really hit home to me being here the last month. Mm -hmm. So at like seven o'clock here, I can go outside and I don't need to put on two extra layers. Mm -hmm. I can go outside and still sit outside and have dinner. This is amazing, this place you have here. <laughs> In Oregon, if you went outside at seven o'clock, oh my you better layer hat, gloves, jacket, like it's cold. So we have, even in the summertime, that huge temperature shift that helps to keep the acidity in the grapes, which is really important. The acidity in the grapes keeps that structure. It's that backbone in the wine. It gives the wine the ability to age and it gives the wine also the ability to pair incredibly well with food. So that's an important um, part about Oregon. In, within the Willamette Valley, we also have multiple different soils as well. B12 
because we've been focusing on the Dundee Hills and the Ola Amity Hills, those are both volcanic soil. That's the primary reason why we bought a vineyard in the Yamhill Carlton district, because it's marine sedimentary soil. We wanted to have a different soil type. So the wines that we're gonna have tonight, the Pinot Gris and the Pinot Noir, these are all grown on volcanic soils. I'll talk a little bit more about those. And um, in the future, when I get to come back and share wines from the new property, um, it'll be dramatically different um, because, of those, because of those soils. Um, this is a map in the Dundee Hills. And the Dundee Hills is one of the smaller, well, I think now that there's so many more, yeah. I think it's like the second smallest um, AVA in the Northern Willamette Valley. And, um, but it's very densely planted. It is the place you wanna be. You know, my parents started 50 years ago, 1971, and this was wheat fields and hazelnuts. And now when you come visit, it's really grapes and vineyards as far as the eye can see. It's really amazing. This is the most expensive vineyard land in Oregon. Another reason why we had to buy outside of the Dundee Hills, we were priced <laughs> out of our own neighborhood. <laughs> um, but all these green are vineyards. And so here's Sokol Blosser. We're kind of right here. Um, and, you know, a lot of the other folks that maybe you've heard of are also in the Dundee Hills. So when, you know, the outside big investments come into Oregon, they're trying to get into the Dundee Hills. So Francis Ford Coppola bought his property in Oregon. Um, Silver Oak came up and bought their property in the Dundee Hills. Um, when, you know, probably the, the, the most widely told story is in the late 80s, Joseph Duran came to Oregon and wanted to buy property to make Pinot Noir in Oregon. And he said, the only place other than Burgundy where I will grow grapes is Oregon. He chose the Dundee Hills and the hillside right next to Sokol Blosser. Wow. So that was a big deal when they came in 1988, because that was way before Oregon really started to get a lot of notoriety. Mm. So before we move on, let's taste whatever's in our glass. The Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris. There we go. You all look thirsty. Sorry for making you wait so long. So Pinot Gris is the second. Don't let them fool you. They like to nerd out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I should have also mentioned, if you have any questions at any point, just ask. Um, whatever the question is, I'm happy to, uh, happy to field it. So Pinot Gris is the second most widely planted bridal in Oregon. We have always had really um, self-imposed strict labeling laws in Oregon. And we've done that from the get-go because we wanted to have be known for quality. Um, so the best example is that, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, at that time, you could have labeled a wine um, with a varietal, and it only needed to be 51% of that varietal. And we said, no, that is not, you know, we don't want it to say Oregon Pinot Noir when it's only 51% Oregon Pinot Noir and 49% whatever, Thompson Seedless, doesn't even have to be vinifera. So, um, right now, you know, so for Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, it has to be 95% or more to, um, have that varietal on the label, uh, even stricter than California. So this is hundred percent Pinot Gris. We also, as kind of a, a group and as a law, um, 
have said, all right, we're going to call it Pinot Gris rather than Pinot Grigio, because we are, we have always sort of felt more of an allegiance to France, but also because we're using Alsatian clones um, in, in, the, in the growing of Pinot Gris. Pinot Gris was not one of the original varietals that my parents planted or that any of the pioneers planted. Um, but as we started farming there, we realized, hey, Oregon can make some really amazing New World Pinot Gris. And we do have a unique perspective on our style of Pinot Gris. So let's, let's plant it. Let's, let's do this. Um, so we've got Pinot Gris in the Dundee Hills on our estate and also Eola Amity Hills uh, on the property that we lease and farm. So this is a combination of fruit from those two areas. Um, when we press this, we do not press the heck out of it. And it's always frustrating when I listen to my accounting brain and I go look at, you know, what's left over from pressing and I pick it up and I'm like, but there's still juice in here. Come on. There's more, we can more yield out of this. Um, but the challenge is that the, the skins hold a lot of bitterness. And so if we press it too much, we're going to get that bitterness. And so we whole cluster press it and do it lightly enough and not to the very, very end so that, um, we don't, we don't get those bitterness. Uh, and then the, it's all stainless steel fermentation and aging. Sometimes we'll do kind of depending on tank space. Um, we do some of the, uh, fermentation and aging in small stainless steel drums and, um, for the most part, it's done in large, larger stainless steel tanks. We ferment it completely dry. So there's no residual sugar in this. Um, and, you know, our goal is for it to just be really crisp, very refreshing, totally, you know, bone dry. And because it's aged in stainless, you know, it does have a little bit of that minerality um, and it's a long, slow, cool fermentation. So with some extended lees contact as well. So we're trying to get a little bit of weight in the mid palate as well with this. So I love Pinot Gris. It's amazing with a lot of the foods that you have out here, mm -hmm. you know, with the seafood bounty that you have. A lot um, of it. A lot of it, you know, similar to what, what, we, what we can get in, um, in Oregon. So what do you think about the Pinot Gris? Yeah. I really like the citrus notes with this mm -hmm. because they're not pithy. They're, they're the meat, they're fresh, they're, they're bright. It's really pleasing on the palate. And, um, I actually drank this during the breakfast and burritos seminar that we had at like eight 30 in the morning and breakfast burritos are a fantastic pairing for Pinot Gris in case anyone's wondering, but sometimes they have that spiciness to them, right? They have a little bit of salsa to them and for me, and I've discussed this a couple of times with food and wine pairing, I'm always looking for something that's going to temper my, my palate, calm it down. You know, all of a sudden your taste buds get super excited and, and open when it's spice. And for me to taste the next bite, I kind of want to cool them down a minute. And so something like this would really go well with that. But the complexity of this wine too, it'll stand up to, you know, Portuguese fish stew. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have, um, any sushi, sushi all with day a little long. bit of ginger and wasabi. Oh, delicious. But especially stuff that's around now, Thanksgiving day tables, 
Pinot Gris is one of those beautiful things that can, because for me, Thanksgiving is all those comforting foods, but it doesn't have, there's nothing that has really a high volume of flavor. You don't have anything too spicy. Even the sweet stuff is kind of subdued a little bit because it's, it's sweet potatoes. It's not real sweetness. Sometimes people add mashed potato or marshmallows on them to make them a little sweeter, but most of that food is kind of balanced. And so for something like this, this is going to amplify any herbs you use on your turkey, any herbs that are in your stuffing. This is something that's going to grab all those flavors that you're using and just amplify it in food. One of my favorite uh, food pairings that I've had in restaurants for sure. Yeah. You're hired. Thanks. No, big fan of Sokol Blosser wine. It wasn't <laughs> just because of that. I mean, you drink the Kool-Aid literally when you go out there, but um, you know, one of the things that I got from Oregon was the farming community, which you keep talking about. Every, I was sitting at that tasting I was discussing, the one in the, in the, um, in the morning, and it was, um, I think it was Rocco. I'm not sure. He wears the cowboy hat. He has a very distinct handlebar mustache. Yes, Rollin Souls. So he's sitting next to me. He's tall and very prominent individual. Texan. And we were tasting, they were tasting the second generation's wines. Um, you know, Allison's brother's wines, when Peterson nerdy, all of the kids that had grown up with these individuals that made the Oregon wine region, they were all tasting their whites. So he kept kind of punching me because he was getting so excited about everybody. He's like, I'm sorry, I keep hitting you. He's like, these are great. I'm like, no, they are great. But Pinot Gris, we tasted maybe seven different wineries and each one of them had a different style, had a different complexity. And the previous wine um, tasting we had with Bill Wilson from Greenville, we talked about the finish a lot and how from Newport, some wines can have a little bit of salinity to them. And it's because they're so close to the ocean and they actually do have some uh, salt that comes into the winery a little bit, but it's mixed in with the soil. And for this one, it's nice to see just how different the finishes are with soil. That was the one thing I took from mm. Oregon is soil is extremely important. And I don't know if you had in that tasting, um, some aged Pinot Gris, but that is always really interesting because most people think of oh, yeah. Pinot Gris as something you just have to drink, you know, right away. You want to drink mm-hmm. it when it's super fresh and it's delicious when it's fresh, but at least for the style of Pinot Gris we make, I'd love it with some age mm-hmm. as well. It really starts to develop some kind of secondary and tertiary flavors that are very interesting. So, you know, if you have a well-made Pinot Gris, don't be afraid to age it too. Yeah. Yes. So the question is, um, how long could you age a Pinot Gris for? What's the shelf life for it? Yeah. So it all is going to depend on how the Pinot Gris is made, whether it's, you know, kind of made for aging um, and also the aging conditions. So for our Pinot Gris, I would say no problem three to five years um, and perhaps even even longer too, depending on the style of, you know, the vintage and then the style that, that you like to, to drink. Most of the wines coming out of Oregon, I find are going to be within that quality. Um, sometimes, you know, some of the stuff that comes out of California, I find because they have a different percentage, it's 85%, I believe is what they qualify. So sometimes those have things like Viognier and other varietals in them. Um, but most of the Oregon ones I know can be pretty um, longevity on the shelf. I had, I think I just opened up the 2017 Pinot Gris that I bought mm-hmm. from when I was there. And that's a great vintage. So that also... Oh, you know, a lot of us also depend on the vintage. I kind of was yeah. bummed that I opened it up too early, but that's <laughs> the name of the game. That's why you always buy, you buy two several. or three. Yeah. 
So that way, if you open it up too early, you still got one backup that you can still wait for. So that was <laughs> one thing I wish I had a little bit longer, but it was a beautiful bottle. And for Chardonnay drinkers, you know, Burgundian Chardonnay drinkers, people who like complex whites, you know, this falls right into that. Sometimes with whites, I'm just looking for different flavors, especially I've heard that a lot through COVID. People were buying like kind of the same wine that they got out at restaurants, but you're drinking a little bit more frequently with things. And so no different than spice when you eat buffalo sauce, your palate can get very used to a similar flavor profile. It maybe just doesn't excite you as much. Um, so exploring different Pinot Gris from Oregon, um, like she was discussing all the different soil structures, they're all going to be a little bit different, kind of like exploring your different style pizza. You can go to a bunch of different New York stand pizzas and get them super huge, but they all probably taste a little bit different and no one's going to say they taste bad. So that's kind of how I kind of relax the idea of exploring different producers because you're just going to find something a little bit different than what you had before. So now, oh, yes. So the question is um, on the properties that they purchased, um, is, there, is there vines um, under acreage already? And if so, uh, what are the varietals that are under acreage? So uh, it's called Kalita Vineyard and it was planted, it's 20 years old. And it was, so it was planted 20 years ago. It's got 22 acres of Pinot Noir on it. And we've been looking for a long time for uh, a piece of property. And, you know, especially Alex is very particular about how it's farmed um, and how it's sited. And, you know, obviously we knew the soil type that we wanted and at, we're certified organic farmers as well. So we wanted a vineyard either that was certified or was at least sustainable so that it would be easier for us to transition it into the organic program. And this vineyard is exceptionally well-sited. It's been exceptionally well cared for. And um, it's, it was owned by a, a gentleman who lived in New York who was just loved wine. Um, so that's unusual, but he hired all the right people to plant it and take care of it. And it's been producing some really delicious wines. So we got a little bit of fruit in 2021 <laughs> and we'll get everything in 2022. <laughs> have, is this the first time you guys have um, purchased another vineyard? It is. Yeah. In the, in we've purchased some adjacent property um, to our vineyard in the Dundee Hills, but it's always been something we have to clear and plant ourselves. So this is the first time that we've bought a vineyard that's developed and, and producing, which I mean, that's nice to not have to wait. Yeah. I was going to say, because five to seven years <laughs> when Bill was here, he was, that question came up and, you know, typically you. it's just, and I always bring up that I always, I'm always interested to find out what um, people's interpretation of old vine is, because as you've seen, there's a lot of regulation that goes into each region. You know, Allison can discuss what, how Oregon and what they went through to be able to regulate things, except for old vines. doesn't matter where you are in the world. There's really no regulation on how old a vine, like there's no year that makes it an old vine. And there's a but, lot of terms like that, like reserve. Yeah. What does that mean? That I've been doing this a long time and I still have to check with everybody. Like what, why is this on here? Is it aged in French oak for how long? It's or not is it regulation? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in most places it's not regulated. There, there was another question here. Yeah. So it'll be Sokol Blosser labeled like this, 
but um, we'll call it Kalita Vineyard as, as like a single vineyard designate. Um, and Kalita is the name of the family that owned it before. And we just, I think it's a beautiful name. Um, and I can trademark it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what was that? So it's actually Yamhill Carlton. So it will have a different appellation and, you know, it'll say Kalita Vineyard. Um, and, you know, maybe it'll say like East Block or West Block or something. We're still trying to figure out exactly, you know, we have a couple of years. <laughs> to figure out how we're going <laughs> to figure out exactly it. how we're going to designate it and what the illustration is going to be. We were just talking about that yesterday, actually. It'd probably be like Oregon Oaks or something because there's some really majestic Oregon Oaks on the property. Sometimes people have to wait until they actually make the wine to figure out how they want it to. I've heard that labeling is probably one of the most back and forth things I think that happens with the new wine, because sometimes you'll put out a label that you're like, yes, this represents the region. It's giving homage to craft that's in the area other than wine. And you put it out and then nothing. And then you change it one little bit and all of a sudden it flies off the shelf. And sometimes it works too. So I'm always interested with the new wine and to see kind of how labeling comes to be and, and the stories behind it. If you worked with a local artist or if you're showcasing a particular, you know, vineyard site or, or an area like that. And I think the vineyard site stuff, that seems to be a regular trend because I know some folks like Shea Vineyards, which mm -hmm. is an original property, they have sold off some of their older blocks, which now other winemakers are producing. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Ken Wright's son, I believe, is doing yep. one of the oldest ones. So he runs a line that's called Purple Hands. And then he'll have one that says Shea Vineyards because it's a specific block from Shea Vineyards. So people do when I, yeah. So people sometimes would get confused. Oh, is, you know, is this from Shea Vineyards? And it's a, it's a block he owned that Shea Vineyards used to own. And similar to what she's saying, they give, Shea, they give the Shea family homage to that particular vineyard site for owning it. And that's why they designate it that way. So the question is about organic and biodynamic uh, growing on the vineyard. Mm -hmm. We are just organic farmers. We are not, uh, not biodynamic farmers. And so we've been farming organically since 2002 and we got certified in 2005. And at that point, um, my mother was still running the, the vineyards, um, but Alex was starting to, you know, try to put his thumb on things. And she wanted to try biodynamic farming at the same time as we were trying to go through the organic program. Um, and it honestly created, oh, this is being recorded, isn't it? Um, it, it is. Yeah. But we so can edit things out. It was, <laughs> it, it was challenging to try to do both. And so they had a conversation of, all right, we got to choose. We, got, we, we can only do one. Like, are we going to be the best organic farmers or are we going to try to, because at that, at that point, at least in Oregon, their biodynamic farming was fairly new. And so there were, you know, folks that would get together. My mom, you know, would call it like her sewing circle, but it was other vineyard growers trying to figure out how to make sense of biodynamic farming. And there was a little, there was more um, structure around the organic farming. And so we made the decision at that point to focus on being the very best organic farmers that we could. 
Um, and at that point, we were also certified sustainable in the vineyard as well. And we were able to maintain that certification for a while. But then at a certain point, it was kind of the same thing where it's like, which are we? Because there were some things that conflicted um, between the two and we kind of had to choose. It's like, well, for organic farmers, we have to spray mildew every seven days. You know, we have to be super proactive every seven to 10 days. Um, but to be a sustainable, you don't want that many tractor passes. You want to spray every 14 days. Um, so there were some, some things that were challenging um, trying to maintain both certifications. And so we just, again, it's like, all right, we are organic farmers and that's what's important to us. And that's what we're going to focus on. Um, all right, let's try the Pinot. Um, this is why we're here. You know, this is our flagship. This is our Dundee Hills Estate Pinot Noir. It's a blend of all of our Pinot blocks on our estate vineyard. Uh, Dundee Hills wines, you know, if you ever do a tasting of the different kind of sub-AVAs within the Willamette Valley, you'll notice that Dundee Hills wines typically are more on the red fruit spectrum of things, whereas the Kalita vineyard that we bought is more on the blue and black fruit side of things with that marine sedimentary soil. Um, so Dundee Hills tends to have an elegance to it and a minerality and the red fruit characters. And those really stem from the soil. So it's a volcanic soil. It's called Jory, J-O-R-Y. That's, um, it's actually the state soil of Oregon. Another trivia question. Um, so that, um, that really, uh, you know, imparts those flavors into the wine. We are, um, in the majority of our vineyard, we're dry farmers, we're not irrigating because the majority of it, except for a couple small blocks, um, has really deep soil. So the Jory soil is very deep, like 10 feet deep and allows the vines to have a nice deep root system and access the water that the vines need. Cause we typically get a lot of rain throughout the year, except in the summer. So the soil is really good at retaining that water so that the vines can access it. With climate change, things warming up, Alex and I talk about, oh man, it would be really nice to have drip irrigation everywhere. So we'll see <laughs> what our climate resiliency plans end up being in the future. But for the first 50 years, we are proud dry farmers and 90% of the vineyard. Um, so for us, farming um, Pinot Noir is all about quality. Um, and, you know, when you, you know, as, as a farmer, you want to get the biggest crop you can get. But when you're farming for Pinot Noir like this, <laughs> it's not about the size of the crop. It's about the quality. So there's a lot of handwork that we do on every single vine. We are touching each vine like 10 to 12 times, every individual vine in the whole property during the growing season. And one of the last things that we're doing is dropping fruit. And so we are trying to estimate how much fruit is out there. And then we'll go through and we'll do green thinning and drop, drop that fruit on the ground um, because we want to make sure that we can ripen the best quality 
fruit. And, you know, that's one of the other challenges with the climate in Oregon. It's that whole risk reward concept, though, is that because it is a cooler climate, there's been a lot of years where we're kind of on the edge of, ooh, is it going to get warm enough to actually ripen this fruit? We haven't had that issue the last few years, but certainly in the 70s and the 80s, we did quite a bit. Um, and so minimizing the crop also increases the odds that we're going to be able to ripen everything. We, um, up until this year, have always handpicked everything on our estate. Um, everything is sorted um, by hand and then fermented in small uh, stainless steel tanks, a little bit taller than me. And then everything is drained and pressed and goes into barrel. We do 16 months of French oak aging. So it's a pretty sizable length of time um, in barrel. And we're using about 40% new oak, the rest once and twice used oak. And then once we blend and bottle, um, we usually try to do about six months of bottle age before we release it. And this, you know, the Dundee Hills is, um, as I mentioned, kind of, you know, it's a representation of our whole estate. This is where our estate pinots begin. So I encourage you, another reason to come visit in Oregon is to explore all the single blocks. So we make a lot of different single blocks, which are very small, you know, this two acre section of the vineyard where we'll make just a couple hundred cases of that, you know, parts of it go into the Dundee Hills, but then we also will make a small bottling from different, different sites within our estate. So, you know, for taste, when, you know, when you taste this wine, um, the things to look for balance, I know that word is somewhat overused, but it's really important when it comes to wine is the balance between the ripeness of the fruit, um, the toastiness of the oak, the acidity, that structure. And then, you know, because of the soil in the Dundee Hills, that minerality, that earthiness that you're going to get as well. And then what's the finish? And that's probably my favorite part of this wine is just that long lingering finish that it really sticks with you. When, you know, I travel around and, you know, meet people and they're like, oh, I, I don't really like Pinot. I like Cabernet. You know, I like Merlot. And I always think, you know what, here's the thing about, you know, Cabernet and Merlot. Those are the kind of wines that are going to hit you over the head. Mm -hmm. They are big. They are bold. They are going to just knock your socks off. Pinot Noir is so much more subtle. It's going to sneak up on you and slip your socks off. Oh, that's good. So it's your choice. Yeah, that's good. I honestly, I had a tough time with Pinot Noir. I had a tough time with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay when I first got into this business. Um, my first bottle of wine was actually something came up on Facebook recently, if any of you are following me. And I sent a notification to my sisters on Facebook when I was living in Florida that I no longer was drinking white Zinvendel and had moved on to a nice oaky Pinot Noir. So it's the one that has the star on it. We all know which one that is. And, um, but Pinot Noir was tough for me. A bottle that I first really got into was the Clinker Brick Lodi County Zinvendel from 2009. But the thing that's kind of moved me from heavier bottles to kind of lighter, uh, medium bodied bottles is kind of the structure. And for me, it's really about the finish, like you were saying. And I enjoy 
a longer finish where I can still taste everything. Um, I didn't fall in love with Chardonnay or Pinot Noir until I went to Oregon. And, and I think it's the diversity of flavor that's there. I like to always look for something new. I'm one of those people that cooks and I kick myself every time because I'm, I cook like my father, which I don't write anything down and I just keep throwing stuff in and tasting it. And I'm like, all right, that's good. And then you try to make it again and you can't do it. So for me, I'm kind of always trying to look for a new flavor. And with Oregon vintage Pinot Noir, that's exactly what you can get. I get so excited about each vintage that comes out, each interpretation that each winemaker has taken from that vintage and how they want to care about the wine and put it in the bottle. And even though this Pinot Noir has a little bit of difference from vintage to vintage, 2017 almost had a little bit more, um, it, it was almost a little bit more darker. It had, it had a little bit more darker to, um, darkness to it. This one in particular, like I just get excited every time I taste it. It's like every single flavor that's red that Pinot Noir can create, you get to taste in this thing, including the texture. And it's just, it's a lovely representation of Pinot Noir. It's beautiful. So the question on this one is um, the aging capability of this particular Pinot Noir. Well, I'm glad you think it's good now. Phew. <laughs> I'm not going to tell my brother though, because that just like makes his head go bigger. Yeah. So the, um, I think Cassandra's recommendation of getting multiple bottles is a good idea because aging wine is so dependent on the style that you like. Mm -hmm. So yes, this wine can age for 10 to 15 years. But that may not be the style of wine that you like. You know, do you like it fresher, more fruit up front? Um, or do you like a wine with more age, um, more, you know, the, more of the earthiness coming out? Um, so it, a lot, that's why if you have multiple bottles, you can try a bottle every year, every other year. And then when you're like, wow, this is singing, that's when you open up all the bottles. That, that's my recommendation. It's kind of like when you're reading the last Harry Potter book and you don't want it to end. So you skip the last couple of chapters and you just put it back on the shelf for a few years. You know, the finish is going to be really good, but you just don't really want it to end yet. That's how I approach it. Ideal time for this Ideal bottle. Ideal time for that bottle. Yeah. Um, so probably like three to five years, because if I could drink 2015 right now, oh. I'd be super, super happy. Oh man. And that's three years older than this. That was a 15 was a good vintage. But I mean, if I had 1988, I'd be pretty happy too. So they also did this I thing at 1998. I'd be yeah. pretty happy or 1999. I mean, I have a hard time holding on to wines that long. <laughs> That's the other problem too. You know, if I have an aged bottle at my house, it's usually because I have 100% forgotten about it. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, that's great. Now I can open it. Um, we did have the experience of they opened up some vintage bottles for us in Oregon. And I think Oregon was my first place I really focused on from fresh vintages to aged vintages. And then also to have that experience of embedding myself in the farming country itself and smelling all of the smells and the different agricultural things that were there. Oregon wine 
is more when it ages, it's more of an experience. I mean, they whipped out stuff, Rieslings from the seventies. I mean, this stuff holds up and, and if it's good quality and you know, it's from properties that can hold up, like Allison said, it's just going to be a different type of experience. You're, you're tasting a different part of the story that mother nature had created that year. So, um, you know, all the stuff from the seventies that they were pouring, I will never forget what those things tasted like, whether it was the Christum Riesling or. And the, when Ivory pulls out stuff from the seventies, oh it's like, boy, I actually have a video of a bunch of us kneeling prayer style because there may have been a Riesling reverend, John, if you're out there, still appreciate you. And you literally, you know, kneel like a prayer and then the bottles are come through. It's, I mean, sacrament, they use it in sacrimonial ceremonies. So we're, um, I think it's fine then. But ageability in Oregon is someone who's experienced it, um, you know, from that time period, the structure is there, the quality is there, and it'll, it'll be a fantastic experience. So we're going to totally switch gears now and try a different red. Um, you'll notice looking at these bottles that these are really different in style. And so we have two sides of our personality. Um, we have the Sokol Blosser side our estate wines, small production, um, you know, about our, everything comes from our little mound of dirt and, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're precious. We release them, we share them with the world, but if we didn't have to, we would hold them all for ourselves. Um, and then on the other side, we have evolution because life's too short to be serious all the time. And we wanted to also make wines that are great every night of the week. And no matter who you're hanging out with, great with friends, great with family, great with a good book, front of the fire and, you know, wines that are more like that drink now kind of style, still wines from real people in a real place, um, but more of that everyday style. And it started with a white blend back in, before white blends were hot and cool back in 1998. I think you have. Which we do have, we do have the white blend. It's one of my favorites for spicy food. It is amazing with spicy foods and yeah. seafood or, and also great with humidity and oh, like hot weather. So good. Yeah. Very refreshing after you mow the lawn on like one of those humid New yep. England days. Very refreshing. Um, so this is the red blend counterpart to it. And we introduced this, hmm, how long ago did we introduce this? Maybe seven-ish years ago. And our goal with this was to make a red blend that would be a nice sibling to the white blend. And the white blend, you know, just has a lot of aromatics and is very fresh, very fruity, just a kiss of sweetness to it. So we wanted to make a red wine that was juicy, jammy, nice, bright fruit, kind of bigger, bolder than Pinot Noir. And you'd think because we're a Pinot Noir house, it would have Pinot Noir in it. It does not. Um, because Pinot Noir is not a juicy, jammy, well, not normally, a juicy, jammy type of style. Um, so we, because we had relationships with folks in California and in, and in Washington um, to make the white blend, we went to them and we said, hey, what do you have? And we started experimenting um, to come up with this blend. So this is a blend probably unlike anything you've had before. It's got Montepulciano in it. It has Sangiovese in it. Um, it has Syrah in it. And then the secret ingredient is that it has a little bit of the Evolution Lucky Number Nine white in it. 
tiny bit. So technically it has, what is that? 12 varietals. Chateauneuf du Pop does 17 at some point, so. Yeah. And so that's what this is. This is awesome with grilled meats, grilled mm -hmm. veggies, great with red sauces. So if you're making like ratatouille or pizza or pasta, you know, or good with comfort foods, good with a nice stew. So really good, like with those warm comfort food dishes in the wintertime, but also great for grilling in the summertime or tailgating in the summertime. So that is the story of evolution. Big I, don't, red. I don't think I've tasted this yet. This is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. This is the new 2020 vintage, um, Oregon, Washington, California fruit. That's good stuff. And it's light. It's the freshness, the acidity on the end. It's bright. It doesn't, it doesn't like, it's not a six ounce filet in your glass. I don't always need a six ounce or a ribeye in my glass when I'm drinking a red wine. There's going to be some nights that it's negative 10 with a wind chill and you'll open up those bottles, but a great Thanksgiving day wine too. Oh, wait, negative 10 with a wind chill. Yeah. That, that happens. happens here. Absolutely. We Ooh. wear masks sometimes because it's not comfortable for our lungs to breathe in the cold air that are here, but that's precarious. It all depends. Certain that usually comes on less snow years when there's a lot of snow, it doesn't get as, as cold. cold. Okay. As long as the snow doesn't last till April. Sorry. That also happens. I just moved here yeah. a month ago. So I'm a little nervous because I've never lived anywhere outside of the Northwest. Oh boy. And I hear you have winter here. Yeah, it exists. Yeah. Okay. Well, we take, we can take care of the roads a little bit better than when you guys get it in Oregon. Oh my gosh. We have to borrow snow plows from Seattle. I remember when, that happened. That happened. In Portland. Yeah. So we're much more prepared. Yeah. No, I, I called the Subaru dealer because I brought my car from Oregon and I'm like, I need to get snow tires. And they're like, I don't have a single Subaru owner who has snow tires. You're going to be fine here. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, you'll be fine. We do all weather tires because the roads get cleared here a lot more than they do other places. You'll be fine. Yeah, we don't believe in um, salt in Oregon. We have a lot of that here. Can't survive without it. Black ice, be careful. We, we, we drive fast and we take chances, but we get to our destination. It's fine. <laughs> it's totally fine. All right, we have a little surprise. We do have too. a surprise. And I'm going to flip to the next yes, slide. flip to the next slide. Because it's fitting for the slide exactly. that we're, we're doing. Exactly. So <laughs> no one has had this yet, at least in my store, including myself. No, it's not for sale yet here. It will be. You guys have you a can, little tiny can, square piece of paper. You get the first dibs on it. On your tables. And if you fill out the information on there with the number of bottles that you like, when it does come in, we will notify you. Or if you'd like, we can just put them in your cart on City Hive and you can cash out. It'll be great. So I mentioned in 2008, Alex and I took over. And we took over as co-presidents um, as I push the table off. Oh, you're Sorry. fine. No, you're fine. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go back to here so I can <laughs> see you without the post. Um, we took over as co-presidents and, you know, the, the, our reasoning was like, well, one plus one could equal three um, if we could really harness each other's strengths and so forth. Um, we do both have MBAs, but we still felt like this one plus one equals three thing could really work. Could work. Um, and we made two promises to each other that day when we took over. 
we said, one, you know, we're brother and sister. We will always love each other. We're in this together. And two, we're going to make sparkling wine. Yes, we are going to figure out how to make sparkling wine. So this was the first time, well, we were posing for one of those really boring family, you know, photos that we can use for like press stuff. And then Alex and I are like, let's do this. And then we doused mom, dad, and our older brother, Nick. Oh, and nice. it was awesome. That's awesome. So this was our 50, this was our, you know, press photo for the 50th anniversary that take that. That's great. <laughs> oh my God. Mom so, did a good job of getting out. She, the, got, she yes, did a fantastic she job of getting out, out of the way. way. Yeah. She's dad a, she's quick. Was, dad didn't believe we would <laughs> pull a fast one on him. Um, but it was super fun. So sparkling wine, you know, you know, when you think about champagne, it's primarily Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and yeah, there's some Pinot Meunier in there too, some other things, but Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. What do we grow in Oregon? Pinot Noir, Noir and Chardonnay. So there's always been a belief that Oregon would be a great place for growing sparkling, for, to, to make sparkling wine, because we grow the grapes. The challenge is that, except for Rollin, yes. <laughs> nobody knows how to make sparkling wine. And it is really different than making still wine. And you need a lot of very expensive equipment. So it um, took us a while. And when I say us, both Sokol Blosser and the industry, to get to the point where now there's actually more than just Argyle and Rocco um, making sparkling wine coming out of Oregon. And when we started doing this, um, when was this? Our first vintage was 2015 ish. Well, actually 2013, no, 2011 was the first year that we did a Brut Rosé. And we started, you know, with 70 cases and we're like, oh, it's gonna be so great. We're gonna hand disgorge this and like do everything by hand. And it was a total disaster. <laughs> you need all that expensive equipment to get it just right. Um, there is brilliantly a company, actually, it was a gentleman who used to work for Rollin at Argyle, mm. who bought all the equipment and said, hey, all you Oregon wineries who want to make sparkling wine, I can help you. I know how to make it, but more importantly, I have all the equipment. So you make the wine, but then I'll come help you bottle it. And I'll do all the riddling and I'll do the disgorging. So when that started, then all the Oregon wineries are like, awesome. We can do our couple hundred cases of sparkling and so forth. We had already started on that path with our Brut Rosé, but it enabled us to really take the next step forward with our Bluebird Cuvée. And so this, um, this is Willamette Valley. We do purchase some fruit, um, but it's all Willamette Valley fruit. It's um, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Muller Turgau, Muscat. Oh dear, there's one more. Hmm. Riesling. Is it Riesling? Thank you. Pinot Noir, Shard, Muscat, Muthur, Gal, Riesling. That was my... Bless you. Thank you. I hope that was right. Riesling. I did some yeah, studying. No, you're right. And Riesling <laughs> in there. Um, it is traditional method. So secondary fermentation in the bottle. Um, but it's only in Tourage about a year. Um, mm. Because we want it to be fresh. We want it to be bright. Um, and it's just really clean as well. 
Uh, we're very proud of this. We've been primarily just selling it um, out of the tasting room and in the Northwest. And this is kind of the first four-way foray into the East. Um, and we, you know, I'm excited, excited to share it. This is, pro you know, when people often ask me, what's your favorite wine? And it's such a loaded question because it's kind of like asking, who's your favorite kid? Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. But so I'm not going to answer the question of what's your favorite wine, but I will tell you which wine I drink the most of. And it's this one, oh, yes. because however much sparkling wine you all drink, it's not enough. You are not, you are not drinking enough sparkling wine. You all know that you're talking to the right crowd with this situation, because the way I feel about kava and sparkling in general. It's yes. It goes with everything. It goes. I've said that over and over again. It goes with everything. It's the official pairing for crab rangoons on New Year's Eve. It is the official pairing for Chinese food. Master sommeliers yes. have written this down in books. Tater tot casserole. Oh, it's great. Taco Bell takeout. Fried like, chicken sandwiches. Fried chicken. Go to Popeye's, get the sandwich, open up a bottle of sparkling. It will change your life. Yes. It will change your life. So, yes. It's on Facebook Live. It's here to stay. Yes. Even when, like, I've, and I've said this before, some of you have heard me say this before too. You don't always have a five star Michelin chef, Michelin chef meal at your table. So sometimes you need one of those beautiful bottle of wines that you got in your cabinet to, you know, amp it up. And as a single person, I don't want to necessarily make a whole meal that's going to last me like three or four days because of the way everything's portioned. Sometimes you just want an Elio's pizza. Elio's pizza and sparkling wine is an experience that you will have in your life and you will thank me for later. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'll say. And dinner will be ready in five to seven minutes and it will be perfect. Absolutely perfect. So here's the secret. Hopefully you sell something like this. Yes. And we sell the good ones, not the ones that pop off when you move it just a little bit. So, and this is a really cheap one, but I find that it works really, really well. You can have a glass, you can have two glasses, just put this in and put it back in the refrigerator mm -hmm. and it will be fantastic the next day. Yes, you don't have to finish the bottle, but keep this on it. Like, so I have my husband really well-trained He'll pour a glass and immediately he puts this back on it. Immediately. Yes. Keep those precious bubbles inside and keep it chilled and you are golden. It will last several days. Once, you know, the level gets down, then you just need to finish it. Yeah, out of the bottle. There's no need to put it in the glass. Another trick too, and I've used this for bartenders because I've worked in restaurants for a long time. And for some reason, they think that these are a one-time use only type of situation and you can't reuse it on several bottles. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Go so, to those restaurants and steal them after they've used it one time. Yes. Be like, no, I'll That's just take lesson that. That's there. fine. Yeah. But you have those long um, iced teaspoons. Everyone's usually got the long iced teaspoons. If you open up the bottle of wine, throw that teaspoon in the freezer and then put the teaspoon inside the bottle and stick it in your fridge, what's going to happen is that spoon is going to kind of release some cold air. So oxygen will stop getting into your, into your bottle. It's not, this obviously is much better because you don't have oxygen going in, but in a, in a quick need, or if you, I use it a lot with picnics, I'll put that spoon inside of the, um, 
inside of the cooler that I have. And then I open up the bottle because it's hot when you have a picnic, usually it's warm outside. So you put that spoon in there and it'll keep the bubbles cold throughout while you're trying to drink it. Just a little trick. I hadn't heard that one. That's good. Yeah. You got to reutilize your resources when you're working in restaurants. Yeah. 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 This is lovely. The citrus is great. The dryness is lovely. It's got kind of that chalkiness that you always kind of look for. That's like, we talk about this a lot, with the erasers that used to clap together at recess. Sometimes that dust would get into your palate. That's a little bit similar to that with that chalkiness, but um, the bubbles are great. They're nice and fine. And um, I know this is a question that comes up a lot, and I don't know if you could speak on this, but you talked about um, secondary bottling in our secondary fermentation in the bottle versus mm-hmm. tank. And that is a quality level when it comes mm-hmm. to sparkling. So um, not doing it in the Prosecco style does elevate the style of uh, sparkling you have. Um, I don't really know the differences between those other than that. Well, I mean, there's huge cost and time differences. Um, and the bubbles tend to be finer and longer lasting with the method traditionnel versus the Charmant. Okay. Method. And then is it, do they do any Charmant in bottle or is that all mostly done in tank? You have to have pressurized tanks. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I think the, the bubbles will form differently. Mm-hmm. And so for BD bubbles, like you get the ones that are kind of moosey, the ones that make us excited. You know, that's kind of, and I, I, that's what I look for when a new region starts to look, starts to make sparkling. Are they doing it in more of the Charmant method or the method um, traditional? And I just, this is, it's knocked out of park. Thank you. It's great. Does anybody have a favorite? The estate Pinot is lovely. How many for the Pinot Gris? This is my favorite part. You can raise you your can hand decide. for everything. You can right? raise your hand for more things. Yeah. So, and the Dundee Pinot Noir, like this is beautiful Pinot Noir. This is, I've tasted a lot of Pinot Noir in Oregon and I've tasted, you know, growing up my wine career in mainly Iberian Peninsula wines with some of the Spanish restaurants that I worked at. This was really the first other main region, like I said before, that I, I stepped over and really, um, put myself into and having gone there with that, uh, Pinot camp experience, whenever I open up a bottle of Pinot Noir from Oregon, it doesn't matter where it's from the price point. All I do is I try to sit there and I'm like, where, what did this look like? Where was this from? And then it like kind of forces you to kind of look up the wineries a little bit because you do get that farming experience with it. So, well, yeah, this was lovely. Absolutely lovely. Thank you so much. Any other questions? No. Does anybody have any questions? I have my business card up here. So stay in touch. If you want to come, come visit in Oregon. Um, I still know people. So happy to, happy to set you up with a reservation and a visit. And that's a really good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So my husband, um, his company offered him an opportunity for an assignment here for three-ish years. And it's like, why not? I mean, everything's on Zoom now anyways. So let's try it. So we're just going to make the most of it and explore the area. And um... yes, do events like this without having to fly home. 
And, you know, and I mean, to have such a good ambassador for Oregon wine country, um, Allison, like I said, was the president of the um, Oregon Pinot camp that I went to. And I think it's important that you have a lot of foodies around here. I mean, with our seafood, we can't not be. I have to try every lobster roll in the city before I leave. You do. Everyone has a different touch to it. Oh, I forgot all the rest of the photos. Yeah, we can blow through the, we can go through these. So yeah, this is what happens when you go to Sokol Blosser and they also, the paella was great. Yeah, that is pretty tasty. Huge. I'll put up some pictures on my Facebook and Instagram so you guys can see them. But the paella pan was like two of me. Like, oh, it was awesome. So that's a harvest action shot. You can see the winery in the background. This is our main tasting room. So when you come visit, this is what you'll see in the building where you can come visit. Well, I'm there once a month. You might catch me. And then that's us, all three generations. I didn't talk that much about the family. I mean, our whole goal is to keep the business in the family, um, which is a lot easier said than done. A lot of the other pioneers have sold out um, in Oregon, and we're really focused on what do we need to do to keep it in the keep it in the family. Um, the third generation uh, ranges from five to twenty-one. We finally have a legal drinker now. Um, Woo. We had to send wine to him at college, and we're like, "Hmm, is that a good idea or not?" <laughs> I'll let you know in a month. I'm sure his um, dorm dorm mate probably loved it. I, I've. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, so we're training the third generation to be responsible stewards of the land and responsible stewards of the business. That's how Alex and I view ourselves is we're just caretakers. We're the second generation taking care of this land, taking care of the business so that we can hand it off to the next generation and hope they don't screw it up. She's amazing. So my parents are both out of the day-to-day. -day. They really stepped away, um, but she lives on the property and I can get her to come do some special events every once in a while. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the extent. We have, she's on our board, you know, so she advises from um, a big picture perspective, but not on a day-to-day -day basis. Except last year, we were so short on pickers that mom and dad she came and helped came us and pick picked. and she hadn't picked for like 20 some years. And, you know, that was the beauty. So in Oregon, we were still all online. Um, and so like zoom lessons, whatever my kids, I'm like, come on all the third generation, we need your help picking. <laughs> so it made it made, made that a little bit easier. So they helped pick this year, um, was tough because three, three of the kids, had to, um, actually four of the kids are in college now. Oh boy. And so harvest and college kind of conflict, um, because we were still picking and we still needed them when they were supposed to go to college. And we're like, what are we going to do? We let them go to college. <laughs> um, Struggle. but dad came and helped a oh little boy. bit. He came and helped a little bit. The heat dome. All these new weather terms. I've never heard of bomb cyclone. I've never heard of a heat dome. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So we got that heat um, pretty early in the season. If that had happened, like, after color change, 
that would have been pretty devastating. Um, so all the heat made for a very dry year, um, but it made for an exceptionally clean harvest. We did not have any yucky stuff happening, which was great. We even had some um, noble rot, which was oh. amazing. We don't, in our, in our Riesling. So we're going to make- Did you do anything with that? A, yeah, we're going to make an estate Riesling that you got to come to the tasting room to get because we're not going to make very much of it um, with some of that noble rot. So that was, that was exciting. So it was after a really challenging 2020 vintage, mm. it was refreshing to have such a clean, high quality vintage where the only challenge was not having enough labor. Does anybody have any other questions? We are at that time. Well, I just want to thank everyone for coming tonight. Thank you, Allison, for being here. Such a pleasure. What an ambassador to Oregon wine country and to the history. Um, you know, I think sometimes we focus a lot of wine history on places like Europe and Italy, um, and Spain, even Iberian Peninsula. But, you know, America has its own Ameri uh, wine history. And Allison's family is a part of that. Um, I say this all the time. Oregon is one of is is or one of the fastest growing high quality wine region that exists in the world, and I just feel that we're on the cusp of kind of discovering what it has to offer. So the fact that everyone's tasting these vintages here, and in ten to twenty years we go back, you know, at the seventy fifth anniversary of Sokol Blosser, we'll taste the estate Pinot Noir, and we'll see kind of what's happened by then and how they've grown. So. Thank you for sharing American history today with me. Thank you for being in the store with me today. Again, I'm so excited. Um, and uh, the next tasting we're having is sold out. You know, I'll try to put them up as quickly as we can. It's going to be the Rutherford uh, family, Rutherford Wine Company with Scott family in Rutherford. We'll be looking at wines from Napa Valley and Orero Seco. I love comparing stuff. So we'll broaden our horizons there. And yeah, that'll be it. So thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Uh, I can collect them. Yes. Yeah.